This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. If there's something out there that's stopping you from achieving your goals or wants, or is genuinely interfering with your happiness, then you don't have to feel alone with it. After some of the most trying times ever that the world has faced over the past 18 months, it's understandable that many of us out there are still finding some things difficult. Anything can weigh on you heavily, and all sorts of things come to try us, don't they? Personally, in the past year, aside from the fallout from the pandemic and how it's affected those closest to me, my family suffered bereavement, I've had to adapt to a drastic work pattern change, and whilst dealing with things like this, on top of making sure that I'm able to be there for those closest to me as best that I can, there are times when that's been hard to do, and I've felt no shame in reaching out, because it's something we all need to do at some point in our lives. And if this is the case, then maybe BetterHelp can help you. What BetterHelp offers is a worldwide, much more affordable service than any traditional offline counselling, in which it assesses whatever issues you may be facing and calling on the broad range of expertise it has available, with specialists in a vast range of issues, some that you may not locally have available to you. BetterHelp then matches you up with your own licensed professional therapist, one selected that best suits your needs, for professional counselling. In less than 24 hours, you can start communicating in a confidential online environment with your own selected personal counsellor, whom you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with, who you can message anytime you want or you feel you need to, and from whom you can expect thoughtful and timely responses back. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, You'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com forward slash TCE. Hello all and the very warmest of welcomes back to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast where each time around to my spare room in North Wales, myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, seeks to recount some of the lesser known, often obscure and sometimes even wildly unbelievable tales of true crime from all corners of the UK and Ireland. It's only complete with you guys, the wonderful lot who keep me here doing what I do, And it's great to have you joining me here once again, where I hope the episode finds you and yours in these uncertain times that we face. All good, all safe, and all well. So getting back into the swing of things now with the enthusiast, it's been a bit stop-start because I've been trying to balance everything, real life versus show life, on top of trying to finish my first book from the show as well, 
case files from the true crime enthusiast. But I'm done with the first draft of it right now, and as soon as I'm happy with it, then I look forward to it coming to you, and which you can pre-order right now from a link that's in the episode show notes. So with everything, of course, it delayed the previous Patreon episode of the show, so I just managed to get it out in the month that it was supposed to be in. But there shall be one out well before the end of this month for supporters. On the subject of supporters, I've got a lot of shout-outs because I missed some last time around. So thanks very much and welcomes go out this time to new supporters Joanna O'Sullivan, Andy Ogden, Picture the Scene podcast, L, Carissa, Sherry Cal, Thomas Forday and Anluca Laden-Pera, plus Sasha VS, Joe Melton, Chris Barnes, Jodie McCoy, Ginger and Charm, and Katie Morris, who have each opted to annually support the show. Thank you so much, all, is all that I can say, really. And while stuff has gone out to some of you, I hope that you have all each at least begun getting down to the tales that make up the bonus enthusiast ones. Stuff such as a tale that contains what was voted Crime Watch UK's scariest ever moment, Death in Highgate Woods, a smattering of unsolved tales such as Operation Magnesium or Double Brandy Dan and Auntie Elsie, bizarre stories such as The Strange Tale of Hellish Nell, or accounts of pure horror and cruelty such as Disfigured, then doing so is an absolute doddle to do. It's just the True Crime Enthusiast podcast over on the Patreon site and you just go from there, choose your tier and you can be hearing these and more quicker than an insulate Britain clown can glue their face to the road. Absolute fucking morons is all I can say there. It's dead, dead simple to do. So this time around then, there comes a tale that I long had knocking around the show's running list. And it's one that has had the good eye and outlined touch of Jess Carter, who's done a sterling job on it, I must admit. Though, of course, I'd never have any doubt of the job Jess would do with it. We head back more than a decade for the first part of our tale, because there's far too much to this one for a single episode. So to begin, we head back to 2010 and to the UK county of North Yorkshire for coverage of a case that for a large part of it, things just don't add up. They just don't make sense at all. It's one that raises questions and likely will cause debate, but most certainly is one that will leave you thinking. The episode this week contains descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So as always, discretion is advised whilst listening, folks. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiasts this time around. We look back at the first part of a case that I've entitled all shop and no sex. The tale I'm bringing this time around then comes back from 2010 and begins in the small village of Melsonby in the North Yorkshire district of Richmondshire, which since 2015 has fallen under the parliamentary constituency of, and you can insert your own caption here, love him or loathe him, Chancellor Rishi Sunak. Melsonby is a village that lies just over a mile away from the A1 and about the same distance from the A66 road towards Cumbria. Juxtaposed with this, about a mile south of Melsonby as the crow flies is Scotch Corner, a busy interchange that is most known for being what's been described as the modern gateway to Cumbria, the North East and Scotland. But despite its proximity to Yorkshire's busiest interchange, 
the jumble of concrete roadways that makes up Scotch Corner bear no relation to the old-fashioned village of Melsonby, which if you were to see a postcard of the area, looks on the surface like any other old-fashioned North Yorkshire settlement. Set in a largely agricultural area, the village, its buildings made from traditional York stone, sits on a crossroads in an area that is described as popular and much sought after by estate agents, with part of its appeal being the stunning views of the surrounding landscape. But another part of the appeal has to be the close-knit community that you would be buying into to live here. Indeed, at the 2011 census, it was established that Melsonby and neighbouring Manfield, which combined to form their electoral ward, boast no more than 1,400 residents between them. Melsonby alone has somewhere around 800 people living there, and for those residents, the big event of the year is reportedly the annual duck race. Now never underestimate what carnage these things like duck races can bring. We used to have an annual one where I'm from, and the hangovers that you'd have after them would be like those from having a quiet night out with George Best and Oliver Reed. Even now, if you Google the phrase events and Melsonby, very few things come up. A particular highlight I spotted has to be the men's ham and egg pie competition. So it's fair to say that this isn't a village where a lot happens. Going back to around our time of interest though, in 2009, North Yorkshire police reported that only 12 criminal offences had taken place there the previous year. One stolen vehicle, four thefts, and seven reports of criminal damage. Now as a matter of fact, we know that the investigation into at least one of the 2009 thefts, one more serious than the others, was hampered by the absence of CCTV in the surrounding area. But we shall come on to that. As you'd expect then, in a place with a low crime rate and no CCTV, the community is a relatively close-knit one. And back in 2010, the heart of the village was the two-in-one post office and local shop. It sat in the centre of the village crossroads at the junction of Moor and East Road, facing the village green, and opposite it, on the other side of Moor Road, separated by an eight-foot-high stone wall, is a car and commercial vehicle business, Nixon's Garage. Back in 2010, the shop and post office was owned and run by one Robin Garbutt and his wife Diana, who'd run the business for the past seven years. 44-year-old Robin Joseph Garbutt, who hailed from the North Yorkshire village of Tholthorpe, was a friendly, well-respected man who is described as being dapper, sociable, yet quietly spoken, whilst his wife Diana, who was four years younger than her husband, was described as being straight-talking. Apparently a little more outgoing than Robin, Diana had a wide circle of friends and was very popular, with a somewhat cheeky sense of humour. The couple who'd been together for 11 years had met at a house party in 1999, and by 2001, Diana was living with Robin at his house in Hubie. Two years later, they'd taken the risk of giving up their respective careers in order to move to Melsonby and purchased the post office building back in 2003, just a few weeks before on the 12th of April of that year, the couple had married at Allerton Castle near Harrogate. Now running a shop and a post office was quite the change in employment for the two of them. Whereas Robin had been a manager at the former York Tech Solutions Limited in Naresborough, 
Diana had previously served in the British Army between 1990 and 1997 with the Women's Royal Army Corps and 2nd Close Support Regiment of the Royal Logistics Corps. It was while serving in the army that she'd married her first husband, a man named Robert Hunter. The marriage didn't last, however, and after she'd left the army, she'd returned to Yorkshire, where she worked for a time as a security officer for G4S in magistrates and crown courts, as well as reportedly being part of the team transporting prisoners to and from Leeds Crown Court. She also for a time was a prison officer at Full Sutton Prison. So, in an attempt to find employment which allowed them to spend a bit more time together with haphazard shifts and everything, the pair had hit upon the idea of purchasing the post office in Melsonby when it came up for offer, and in order to facilitate this plan, Diana had retrained as a postmistress, the idea being that she would oversee the post office side of things and Robin would manage the running of the shop. Aside from the downstairs post office and shop then, the premises also featured a good-sized upstairs flat where the couple lived, consisting of a lounge, bathroom, a kitchen that they were midway through renovating, and three bedrooms. The shop, which was open seven days a week, offered a range of very basic supplies, although Robin always made sure to keep the shelves stocked with the things that he knew his customers liked. From photographs that were available of the premises, it was a little dark and dingy looking, but you can see that they had a good selection of wines and cigarettes in. So that, plus the paper and some sweets, what else can you need really? He believed that in order to keep business, you have to build up a rapport with your customers. And he had a mantra, you have to just generally be nice to people and they tend to be nice back to you. So to this end, Robin would even go so far as to personally deliver groceries to some of the elderly village residents. And since Robin and Diana's arrival in the village, they'd become a well-known and well-liked couple. As they settled into their new roles though, Robin had begun to assume more responsibility for the post office side of the business also, as he coped better with the 4am wake-up times. As Diana grew less and less interested in being a postmistress, it became more likely that she would be seen in the shop in the afternoons and evenings, choosing to spend the mornings in bed and getting up at any time between 8.30 and 11am. Sounds pretty alright to be fair when that alarm clock goes off in the morning, eh? When she was downstairs, she could almost always be found sitting on a stool near the post office section of the store which was a small boxed-in area towards the back right of the shop floor. Now, however they shared out the day-to-day -day running of the place, this philosophy of Robin certainly seemed to work well, because under the couple's tenure, the shop had soon built its annual turnover from £148 to £200,000. Though this did only amount to a modest £4,000 a year in outright profit, it afforded the Garbutts to enjoy several holidays or trips a year, and as a matter of fact, in 2009 they apparently had eight of these, including trips to Paris and Amsterdam, two visits to the Hard Rock Cafe, as well as weekends away in Northumberland, York, and twice to Bolton Abbey. The same year, as a 40th birthday present from Robin, Diana and a friend of hers were also lucky enough to have got to see Bruce Springsteen play at Glastonbury, complete with a hire of a camper van for the weekend. Now as a bit of a side note here, I know Jess is a massive fan of Bruce Springsteen, 
and I have it on good authority that the performance of The River from that weekend is absolutely iconic, one well worth checking out, but I digress. So, Robin and Diana certainly appeared to be doing well. They seemed a happy, contented couple who were making a good go at their business, and villagers there thought the world of them. Dina Dalton, one neighbour who knew both well through a book club come wine and chat evening that she ran with Diana, couldn't speak highly enough of either of them, saying that Diana was one of the most loyal and reliable people she could remember, and that Robin was an ideal role model for her eight-year-old son, because you'd never find a more honest, gentle and kinder person. So it sounds pretty good so far, doesn't it? And you'd be forgiven for thinking that you'd started listening to the bloody Archers or a completely different kind of podcast up to now. But as always on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, there comes a point in the tale where events take a tragic turn or things go proper tits up. For Robin and Diana Garbutt, that point was on the morning of Tuesday the 23rd of March 2010. That day started exactly the same as any other Tuesday. Robin awoke just before 4am and had washed, shaved and dressed before setting about offloading stock for the shop. The items had been purchased the night before from Batley's Cash and Carry in Darlington, as was the case every Monday, and everything had been left locked in the car overnight for Robin to deal with the next morning. The previous evening had been a busy one for the couple. Robin had gone out to the Cash and Carry, and on his way home, he grabbed a fish and chip supper for the couple. After he'd returned, they ate their meal, and Diana stayed up late to do the post office accounts and prepare VAT returns. Because Robin was up at 4am, he retired to bed earlier than Diana, who apparently stayed awake until sometime past midnight finishing the accounts and browsing on a few websites. Robin was fast asleep by the time she came to bed, and did not hear her come in. Now that night the couple were sleeping in this spare bedroom, which was unusual for them, but necessary because the bed in the master bedroom was covered in suitcases as they were in the middle of preparing for an upcoming holiday that was due to begin the following week, a trip to America where they would be visiting family. The cost of this holiday has been reported as being somewhere in the region of £3,000, which Robin and Diana managed to pay for in cash with savings. But if somewhat expensive, the couple felt as if the expense would be worth it. They'd never managed to have a honeymoon, and this seemed like the perfect time. Now, by all accounts, Diana was really looking forward to the trip. She'd been born in East Suffolk and was brought up in Eggborough and Selby in North Yorkshire. But her father, William Kiefer, was American and had served as a sergeant in the United States Air Force. So Diana, who held dual British American nationality, and Robin had planned their belated three-week-long honeymoon of sorts so that they could visit Diana's stateside family, including her sister Victoria, who lived in California, and her 94-year-old grandmother Rose, who lived in Virginia. They were scheduled to leave for the trip on the following Tuesday, the 30th of March, and were in the process of making sure that everything was in order for the relief postmistress who would be overseeing the business in their absence. After Robin opened the shop at 5am that morning, he received a steady stream of customers from around 5.15 until 8.30, 
and put through the till somewhere in the region of 60 transactions, which if you wanted to work it out, that's on average about one every few minutes, which sounds like a busy start to a day, doesn't it? Obviously no chance to gently ease yourself into the day there. Between serving customers, he continued to use the downstairs back door of the shop to go between his car and the storeroom where he was restocking items. The milkman, David Harper, who arrived that morning to make a delivery, recalled that Robin seemed to be his normal self, friendly, affable and personable, a sentiment that was echoed by several other customers he served that morning. Although one regular customer, Angela Wood, did recall he might have appeared a little tired and pale, which could be fully understandable given the early start and the late evening. I get up at half five, two days a week for work, and I always have eyes like a mad dog's bollocks when I look in the mirror afterwards, so sympathies there. Despite this, however, though, Angela remembered that Robin was still polite and cheerful. He was by all accounts an excellent shopkeeper, one who made it his business to be friendly and kind to his clientele. Another customer, a Mr. Shedden, who had lived in Melsonby for more than 30 years, recalled buying his regular broadsheet as well as some flour and suet shortly before 8.30am that day, and he and Robin chatted and joked about football and his own cooking skills before he went on his way. It was mere moments after Mr. Shedden left the store that that morning took a terrifying turn. As the clock struck 8.30, the post office safe bleeped to show that its time lock had been deactivated. The safe was fitted with a timer that meant it could not be opened before 8.30 in the morning, and upon opening, the time was logged both inside the deposit box and also centrally at post office headquarters. Robin finished up serving customer Dorothy Cole, and when she left the shop at around 8.35, he went to go and open the safe, which was in the post office booth. Upon doing so, Robin removed the A4 book containing postage stamps and the compartmentalised coin tray containing the post office's till float, and it was then that he heard a noise from behind the door which connected the shop to the stairs up to the first floor flat, where his wife lay sleeping. He left the booth and went to the door where he assumed he would see Diana, but instead was met by a man whose face was covered in a tight-fitting, fleecy, black ski mask. The man was around 5 foot 11 to 6 foot tall and wore a dark blue long-sleeved shirt and baggy jeans with large pockets at the back which sat low on the man's waist. He was also carrying a black hold-all made of a shiny plastic which was about 2 foot long and had two loop handles. The zip of the bag was open, and Robin could see what might have been a black towel inside it. And as if the sight of an unknown intruder in a balaclava wasn't terrifying enough, Robin then spotted that down by the man's right-hand side, he carried a handgun. It was a sight that immediately made Robin's mind flash back to events of the previous year almost a year to the day. On the 17th of March 2009, which was also a Tuesday and also at around 8.30 in the morning, while he worked alone in the shop with Diana asleep upstairs, Robin had been confronted by two hooded men who wore their faces covered. Robin thought that they were between the ages of 20 and 25, 
and noticed that they were each wearing dark clothing, although it was difficult for Robin to concentrate on too much when he noticed that one of them had a gun pointed at him. The raiders demanded that he open the post office safe and had made off with almost £11,000 in cash as well as a valuable A4 book of stamps. Unfortunately, Robin had failed to see the raiders' getaway vehicle or its direction of travel and despite an investigation, police had not managed to find the men responsible for the armed robbery. The theft I mentioned before that was particularly hampered by the lack of CCTV in the village. Now the events of that day in 2009 had unsurprisingly unnerved Robin to such an extent that he had seriously considered giving up the post office and moving away from Melsonby. He was reportedly a nervous wreck after it happened and had even petitioned to get a village notice board removed from the garden of the shop because he thought it obscured too much his view of outside and this was something that was done with a notice board being removed to a location on opposite Ladywell Bank. Despite his fears, eventually his regular customers and friends had persuaded him to stay in the village though. And now, 53 weeks later, he found himself in an almost identical situation. But strangely enough though, this time he wasn't scared, not even when the man in the balaclava told him, Don't be stupid we've got your wife upstairs. He then ordered Robin to turn off the lights in the shop and to lock the front door. Doing as told, as Robin slid the top bolt across the door, the masked man told him to return to the booth and fill the black hole door with money from the safe. Outside the post office, Bill Nixon, the owner of Nixon's garage on the opposite side of the road, heard or saw nothing out of the ordinary. All he could later recall was the usual sight of around 40 children waiting on the pavement for their school bus. It was reported that some had even purchased sweets from the shop some minutes previously. Inside the building, meanwhile, Robin Garbutt was hurriedly stuffing bundles of money into the black hole doll, a sum that amounted to what was reportedly £16,000 in 20, 10 and £5 notes. Emerging from the booth, Robin then went around to the back of the shop counter, where on the instruction of the raider, he also emptied the contents of the till into the hold all, which was around £150. Robin then handed the bag back to the raider, who immediately left through the downstairs back door, which unusually, Robin had failed to lock after he finished unloading the stock, an oversight as he was normally so careful to ensure that he and his part-time staff kept the door locked at all times. The whole incident between the locking of the shop door, emptying the safe and the till, and the robber's escape, had taken place in what Robin later estimated to be between 20 to 25 seconds. As soon as he had pushed shut the back door, Robin hurried upstairs to the spare room to check on Diana. In his panic and haste, he passed straight by one of the silent alarms installed near the collecting door. Now this silent alarm was one of three in the premises and connected the shop to the police control room in North Allerton via a central monitoring system and when activated would bring police response quickly to the premises. In the agony of the moment though, Robin failed to remember that the alarm was there. 
He'd also failed to remember the two other alarms, one which is installed next to the shop till, and a third one which was next to the safe itself. Panic does funny things to people though, doesn't it? Some people have a good presence of mind in a crisis, and others, well, they really don't, do they? Anyway, Robin, apparently pretty terrified by this point, raced upstairs to the doorway of the spare bedroom, where he was greeted with a terrible sight. Diana Garbutt lay face down on the bed. She was on top of the duvet cover, still dressed in her bedtime attire of pyjama bottoms, and what is described as a sun top or a camisole. She was lying in a pool of blood which appeared to have come from a wound to her head and had spread out, saturating the pillow beneath her. She had been struck by three heavy blows, once on the top of the head and once either side from a blunt instrument, which would later be identified to be a rusty iron bar. One of these blows that had caught her had been a fatal one. Robin Garbutt did not yet know this, and in blind panic, he did not yet think to check on his wife's condition, but instead ran immediately to the first floor living room, where at 8.37am, just two minutes after he'd gone to open the safe, Robin Garbutt called 999 to report the robbery and the attack. Now the recording of this 999 call is available on YouTube, and is reproduced here as follows. Ambulance, what's the address of the emergency? It's, uh, it's the corner shop, Two East Road, Milton Bay. Sorry, could you just repeat that for me? It's a really bad line. So it's the corner shop. Yep, is that command at uh, the old post office? That's it, yeah. And that's East Road? Yeah. In which town? Uh, sorry, it's Milton Bay. Milton Bay. Could you confirm the telephone number you're calling? Oh, God, it's, it's 01325. My wife's been attacked. She's been attacked? Is the attacker still nearby? Oh, no, 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 he's gone. He's Were gone. any weapons involved or mentioned? <sighs> I think the, uh, the guy with me, um, he had a gun and he said to me... He, he said, had a uh, gun, sir. The guy who came with me said he had a, well, he did have a gun and he said, don't be stupid, um, we've got your wife. He's gone, I've come upstairs. Right. Has your wife been shot? I don't think, I don't know, I would have heard a gun. I don't you, know. You, you don't know what's happened and that's fine, sir. Now note how his voice seems slightly breathless and panicked as he tells the operator his wife has been attacked and the panic which reaches a crescendo when asked if the attacker is nearby and he replies, no, no, he's gone. Next door to the post office and unaware of the dramatic events that had just unfolded, the Garbutt's neighbour, Pauline Dye, was hanging out her washing in a adjoining courtyard. The events of the morning are a little difficult to untangle, but it appears as if while still on the phone to the emergency services, sometime after 8.37am, Robin ran down to knock on the Dye's door to ask if Pauline's husband David could come and assist. Now David had gone out at the time, but when Robin told her that Diana had been attacked, Pauline agreed to come, and slamming the door behind her, she followed him up to the spare bedroom in which Diana lay, her face in the bloody pillow. From a furtherance to the emergency call, although an audio recording is unavailable, reportedly Robin was still on the phone to the emergency services, and when they asked if Diana was still breathing, Robin told them, No, I don't think so. There's mess on the pillow. 
The operator then instructed him to turn over Diana's body in order to try and find her pulse. He first asked Pauline to turn her over and she noted the blood on the pillow and Robin said, she's still warm. When she reached over to touch Diana's leg, Pauline found it was indeed slightly warm, but when she tried to turn Mrs. Garbutt's body over, she wasn't strong enough to do it herself and had to persuade Robin to help her. He protested this and said, Oh my God, her face, what about her face? But Pauline insisted that she couldn't manage it alone, so eventually, between the pair of them, they did manage to roll Diana's body over on the bed. They then tried to find a pulse and couldn't, with Mrs. Dye recalling later, she was all blue right across the chest. There was matted blood in Diana's hair, and when they tried to find a pulse, her wrist was coldish, as was described later. As they tried to find the pulse, Robin told the emergency services, She's gone a funny colour and it's not responding to anything. There's blood everywhere. Her face is terrible. Speaking later about the moment he first entered the spare room, Robin said, When I walked into the room, I knew there was something wrong. If you knew Di, there was something about her. There was a spark even when she was asleep and there was nothing there. Over the road at Nixon's garage, Bill Nixon was in the middle of serving a customer when he heard an ambulance arrive. He would later recall, I thought, that's strange, and then all hell broke loose. And in a tiny village, that's an apt description. The first police officer to arrive in Melsonby was traffic officer PC Chris Graham Marlowe, who gave the ambulance crew the all clear to enter the premises and accompanied them upstairs, whereupon finding Diana Garbutt, Paramedic Michael Whitaker began to test for her vital signs. He could find no electrical activity in Diana's heart and felt that her arm was solid with rigor mortis. There were also clear signs of hypostasis, the medical name for the pooling of blood in tissue where the heart has stopped. Strangely, however, these factors indicated that Diana's death would have to have occurred at least an hour earlier and was probably more likely to have been several hours previously, although at the time, Michael Whitaker could not be sure exactly how long she'd been dead for. He later said, I assumed that the lady had been deceased for quite some time. The second officer to arrive on the scene was PC Mark Reed, who later recalled how distressed Robin Garbutt was when the paramedic informed him that rigor mortis had set in on his wife's body. Robin had asked, How can that be? She's still warm. To which the paramedic gestured towards her arm, saying, If you look, sir, that's what we call rigor mortis. Visibly distressed at the idea, Robin had again insisted, It's not rigor mortis. And Michael Whitaker had to again insist, It is, I'm afraid. She's been down for a while. Later that day, at around lunchtime, PC Reed and another officer were tasked with transporting Robin to police headquarters in North Allerton to take his statement. And once again, he had repeated, referring to if it was rigor mortis, why was her back still warm? He seemed completely unable to begin to come to terms with the idea that his wife may have lain dead upstairs 
whilst he unknowingly went about his day believing that everything was exactly the same as it always had been. Robin was later to say concerning this, Nobody likes to hear their wife is dead. It was him saying that she was definitely dead. It meant that she had definitely died. While Robin's statement was being taken in North Allerton, police were busy in Melsonby as they began the difficult and time-consuming task of investigating the scene of the crime and questioning members of the close-knit community. The roads surrounding the post office were closed and cordoned off and a large police response deployed, with residents recalling armed police officers, several vans and cars at the scene. A murder investigation, codenamed Operation Naboo, was immediately launched by North Yorkshire Police and 30 officers assigned to it, working from a mobile facility set up in the adjacent Moor Road. As they began to gather evidence, a crime scene photographer began the process of visually cataloguing the Garbutt's flat and shop, whilst forensic experts searched throughout the living quarters and presumably downstairs in the shop for any foreign DNA or fingerprint evidence. Police also ostensibly, bear that in mind, ostensibly scoured the area around the building for potential evidence. As the investigation picked up pace, it became increasingly apparent that whatever had happened on the morning of Tuesday the 23rd of March, it was going to be difficult to find answers. As they canvassed the area and spoke to residents of Melsonby, it emerged that no one had seen or heard anything really out of the ordinary that day. Linda Ling, who worked part-time in the shop and who lived in a cottage nearby, told them that she'd not seen or heard anything which would have suggested that a disturbance had occurred. She said she opened her curtains at around 8.15am and as usual saw the children waiting for the school bus nearby. It was then that she went to make her bed and only after that was done did she notice the ambulance and realise that something had happened across the road. Like Bill Nixon, she'd seen no sign of anyone leaving the shop in a hurry that morning. The same was true for every one of the people who lived and worked around the post office. Somehow, a robbery and brutal murder had been committed and no one had seen or heard a thing. As well as canvassing the Melsonby residents, in the days following Diana's murder, police also set up morning traffic stops in the vicinity to try and gather witness statements from any motorists who may have been passing through the village that morning. Similarly, officers stationed outside the post office were tasked with stopping anyone who passed the building on foot and taking statements from them. Some of the officers were also assigned with conducting in-depth searches of the nearby areas, the local bin collections were stopped to allow police to sift through residents' rubbish in the hopes of finding something discarded that may lead them to Diana's killer. An underwater search team scoured the area's becks and gullies, which, normally known for their hosting of the annual duck race, now became potential sites in which a murder weapon could have been disposed of. And two days into the investigation, police had something of a lucky break. On the top of an eight-foot-high stone wall, which formed part of the Nixon's garage boundary wall, directly opposite the rear entrance to the post office, which was accessible from the roadside only, they came across a long, hollow, rusty metal bar measuring some 58 centimetres in length. 
DNA testing would much later establish it as the weapon with which Diana Garbutt had been killed. In the days following the murder, the media circus went into overdrive. The story of a small village postmistress being brutally bludgeoned to death in her bed unsurprisingly made big news. Now it's fair to say that North Yorkshire police certainly had a preoccupation with how the media reported on the case, which may well have been in part due to kickback from their initial investigation into the disappearance of 35-year-old University of York chef Claudia Lawrence the previous year. Now I'm sure I don't need to mention Claudia's case as it's extremely high profile and it's, and it's one that's very well documented. But unfortunately for the North Yorkshire police, they made a series of early blunders in the investigation into Claudia's disappearance, which cost them a fair amount of credibility. This included the issuing of an inaccurate photograph of Claudia at the time of her disappearance, as well as the failure to establish basic facts, such as distances or timings of events, that type of thing. And also for them to put far too much weight onto the theory that Claudia's disappearance had something to do with her private life, namely that she was reported to have had a series of short-term relationships without settling down and had apparently been involved with a married man in the months before her disappearance. As is so often true of police forces, they'd become convinced that a woman's unorthodox love life must be the reason that something bad happened to her, but it turned out that this avenue of inquiry just led to a lot of wasted time and dead ends. So, having been very publicly held to account for their failings in the Claudia Lawrence investigation, they must have been looking to redeem themselves with their conduct in hunting for the killer of Diana Garbutt, and as a result, recognising the public's desire for answers, several press conferences were held in the days following the murder. At the first of these, held just the following day, Senior Investigating Officer Detective Superintendent Lewis Raw confirmed that Diana had not been shot, although Robin Garbutt had witnessed a firearm held close to the robber's side. He told the gathered media that they were looking into similarities between the events of that Tuesday and the armed robbery which had occurred a year previously, saying that there had been an extensive investigation into the robbery conducted at that time, but no one had ever been arrested. In relation to Diana's murder, he went on to appeal to anyone who may have possibly seen her attacker leaving the shop, saying, it is possible that he may have removed the mask after leaving the post office. If anyone finds a discarded mask or clothing fitting that worn by the suspect, then please contact North Yorkshire Police immediately. Following on from this press conference, two days later, on Friday the 26th of March, Diana's mother, 60-year-old Agnes Gaylor, who ran the Boot and Shoe pub at Gowdall near Selby, told gathered reporters that her life had been shattered by her daughter's murder. Reading from a prepared statement, but unable to keep the emotion from entering her voice as she went off script to talk about her daughter, Agnes said, Diana was an amazing girl with a wicked sense of humour. The person who's taken my Diana's life has also destroyed my life, her husband Robin's life, and the lives of so many other people who adored her. Nobody does, but she of all people did not deserve to be taken this way. Someone knows the person who did this, 
Someone you know may have Diana's blood on their hands, may have been behaving oddly or spending more money than usual. I'm here today to appeal to anyone watching, reading or listening. If you have any information which may help the police catch the person who brutally murdered my wonderful daughter Diana, then please come forward with that information. Catching them won't bring my daughter back, but if you know anything which can stop the killer from hurting anyone else, please speak out now and contact the police. She then spoke about having to break the news to Diana's 94-year-old grandmother Rose, saying, She rang me a couple of days ago, and Rose is just an amazing person. She held it together to speak to me. She didn't lose control. I know how much that's hurting her. Following the appeals of Detective Superintendent Raw and Agnes, police received over 90 calls to the incident room, results which pleased the police, who then used another press conference to appeal for more information. On Monday, March the 29th, Detective Superintendent Raw told the press that they were keen to trace any customers who had used the post office on the morning of the murder who hadn't yet come forward as well as the owner or driver of a white transit or box van which had been seen parked near to the post office between the hours of 4am and 9am on the 23rd of March. A vehicle that it emerged had been seen by a number of people. He ended the appeal with the statement, The investigation is very complex and it will take some time to complete all avenues. But what did that actually mean? Did it imply that the investigating officers were by then less than convinced that the man they were looking for was your run-of-the-mill armed robber? It would take a couple more weeks before the message behind DS Raw's statement became clear. But at that time though, as the investigation headed into its second week, some Melton B residents were surprised by the lines of questioning that police had begun to pursue, as whilst conducting house-to-house -house inquiries. Officers had asked a range of unusual questions such as whether they had any body piercings, did they pluck their eyebrows, what was the hair and eye colour, did they wear a watch and so on, as well as quite intrusive questions about their neighbours. Now I'm not sure what entirely they were trying to establish there with these lines of inquiry, considering Robin Garbutt didn't give much indication that he'd become intimately acquainted with his wife's murderer's bloody body piercings over the course of the robbery but who am I to question the motive behind such inquiries? In fairness to them, each of the residents of Melsonby tried their utmost to answer the questions posed by police, for they were, after all, anxious to help the investigation in any way they could. They'd lost a beloved friend and fellow villager, and were desperate to be able to assist in bringing Diana's murderer to justice on Robin's behalf. Now, I've already told you that Diana's mum Agnes had spoken to the press in the days after her daughter's murder, but what about her husband Robin? It was more than understandable that he would need some time and space to start to come to terms with the terrible events of that Tuesday morning. After the robbery a year previously, you'll recall that he almost quit the job completely, so shaken was he by it. Now, in the aftermath of it happening yet again, and this time also resulting in the brutal murder of his wife, he chose to stay quietly with his family while he began to process what had happened. Speaking about the day of the murder, his brother-in-law Mark later described, 
At approximately 10pm that evening, Robin, who'd spent all day with total strangers after discovering his wife's body, eventually came home to us, his family, and collapsed in his sister's arms, a totally lost and devastated person. This is reflected in Robin's actions in the weeks to follow the murder. Each day would be visited by a police liaison officer and relied on the support of his family who described themselves as close-knit. He chose to only speak to the public through the police and in a statement released on the 1st of April, he said, The past week has been extremely difficult and traumatic for me. Die was my life and I'm lost without her. I would like to express my gratitude for the support of my family, friends and the police. The statement sounds somewhat genuine and composed, doesn't it? It smacks of someone holding himself together well in the face of such tragedy and horror, something that was extenuated during his police interviews, a clip of which from one of them I can reproduce here as follows. I'm in the post office. The door might have been... You could have one person that might have been open. The door it shouldn't have been open, but it might have been open. Um, knowing me, it would have been slightly open. And I heard, uh, I heard a noise, and then I think I thought it was Dad uh, coming to the shop. Oh, dog makes a funny little noise sometimes. I tend to listen for Dad because normally the alarm system would go beep beep. Normally, either acts as a signal saying the kids have gone, or it's at that state type thing, because you shouldn't have an alarm clock. So I heard that, so I come, I suppose, hi, die. I come uh, out of the shop, and uh, there's a, a, a guy there. Hang on a sec. What, what do you mean you've come out of the shop? You've come sorry, out of the post office. Sorry, not the shop, sorry, I've come out of the post office. Bit. And you have to sort of like stick your head out and go, I die, and normally die, you'll say, can you get me this or that for the, and she makes sandwiches and stuff and, right. and things. Yeah. Or she comes and says, can you bottle of Coke or a bottle of water? Or, or she says, anybody in the shop? Because she's in the gym jams, yeah. mostly, in the morning. Yeah. Uh, anyhow, the, uh, what, it was somebody stood there, and uh, they just said, to, oh no, do you know what? I knew straight away we were, I was going to be robbed. I just knew it because he obviously he was, you know, but, and I wasn't really worried, you know? It's one of some stupid, but the first time I was absolutely shitting a brick, and this time, but he, the first thing he said to me straight away was, he said, uh, Don't do anything stupid, we've got your wife. And uh, he said, Turn the lights off and uh, lock the door. So um, I, uh, I went back to our living bit, round the corner in, in, in our living bit is a light. So uh, I turned the lights off and I walked over to the door and just bolted and locked it because, you know, the key just locked, bolted it. And uh, I came, uh, came back, he, he handed me a, a, um, a black hole doll and uh, he said, put the money in the bag, I think, I'll put the money from the safe, I put the money in the bag, I think he said. Um, so I just walked into the, uh, into the post office, he followed behind me, not into the post office, followed behind me, went up to the stool there, I went in and put the money in the, uh, 
put the money in the, the hold or there's something else in there already, like a book thing, you know, I just want to put the money in, won't empty the bag. Then I uh, emptied, uh, put my till money in, there's nothing in there, there's peanuts, you know, a good quid for, you know, that's all I keep in there as a till filter. Oh, it's your till? Yeah. And I, because uh, I keep my till empty all the time, it's in the pocket. And, uh, handed in the bag, I think he said stay there. He just walked out and I heard the uh, the front door open. It makes the right, you know, distinctive. And uh, I went, uh, so as soon as that, I thought, sod it, and I went straight upstairs. And uh, I just um, put my head in Dice's bedroom, all bedroom, and uh, saw Dice brought into bed. That clip, taken from an interview room camera and that was reproduced on YouTube and a link to which is in the episode show notes for you to see, is timestamped at 13.30 on the 23rd of March 2010, less than five hours after he discovered his wife murdered upstairs. I'd say he was holding himself together pretty well, wouldn't you? But how supportive were the police really being towards him? Wednesday the 14th of April 2010, to the almost unanimous surprise of the residents of Melsonby, at around 7.30 in the morning, just after he'd finished breakfast, Robin Garbutt was arrested by officers from North Yorkshire Police on suspicion of the murder of his wife Diana. You were expelled from the True Crime Enthusiast Club if you couldn't have seen that coming. Over the next three days he was held and questioned extensively and only at the end of that time was he allowed to see members of his family who hugged him briefly, exchanged a few words with him and left him with a set of fresh clothes. Speaking at yet another hastily arranged press conference, Detective Superintendent Raw told the gathered media The tragic death of Diana Garbutt three weeks ago has had a significant impact on people living in Melsonby and Richmondshire as a whole. It has also captured the concern and sympathy of the wider community due to the high level of media coverage of the case. As we strive to bring Diana's killer to justice, it is vital that people resist from any form of speculation and rumour while the murder investigation continues. This is especially so following the arrest of a man in connection with the inquiry. I would again like to offer my sincere gratitude for the overwhelming support and understanding that local people have given the police throughout this very complex investigation. On the morning of Saturday the 17th of April 2010, Robin Garbutt, dressed in a dark blue t-shirt with turquoise stripes and a pair of black jeans, and flanked by two security officers, was led into North Allerton Magistrates Court. In the public gallery there sat 11 people, all of whom were believed to be Melsonby locals, one of them wearing a post office uniform. Two women sitting apart from each other reportedly wept as Robin was led into the glass dock in handcuffs. He sat impassively throughout the brief hearing speaking only to answer his name and to give his age and address, where at the cessation, 
it was determined that he should appear before Teesside Crown Court on the following Tuesday. Because, three and a half weeks after Diana's death, Robin Garbutt had been charged with her murder. No pleas were entered during the hearing, but under new legislation he could not make a bail application before the magistrates, and so was remanded into custody, where bail would be decided upon by the recorder of Middlesbrough, Judge Peter Fox, at Teesside Crown Court the following Tuesday. At that subsequent hearing, his appeal for bail was denied, and he was scheduled to appear again before the court on the 24th of June for a plea and case management hearing. A behind-closed-doors hearing was held the following month in which Robin again applied for and was denied bail while he awaited his plea hearing, which went ahead on the 24th of June, and at which Robin, standing before Judge Peter Fox, stated in a clear and firm voice, not guilty, and the charge of murder was put to him. Following his plea, the trial was scheduled to begin on October the 4th of that year, with Robin Garbutt being remanded in custody at Hume Hall Prison until that date. However, at the pre-trial hearing which took place a week before Robin's trial was meant to begin on the 28th of September, Mr Justice Calvert Smith agreed to postpone proceedings after the court heard of a potentially significant breakthrough in the case. Here, Mr Justice Calvert Smith had agreed to allow more time in order for additional checks to be completed on the metal bar which had been found on the opposite side of the road from the post office on the eight-foot high wall which separated Bill Nixon's garage from the road. The item that had by then been identified as being the murder weapon and not long since either for it transpired later that despite the metal bar having been found two days after the murder Forensic scientists had only begun to run tests on it in the previous month, in August. And worse than that, the September hearing was the first time that Garbutt's legal team had apparently been made aware of the existence of such an important piece of evidence. I know, right? Both sets of counsel were in agreement and asked that the trial be postponed for at least four weeks while their tests could be completed. At least one of Robin's supporters in the public gallery was visibly tearful, as it meant that in the event of a trial postponement, Garbutt could be released on bail, pending the completion of the tests on the metal bar. On the 4th of October, he appeared again in court, where it was decided that his trial would be postponed until March of 2011, and now, officially released on bail, Robin was free to go home, where he stayed with his family, and awaited the start of the new trial. Meanwhile, back in Melsonby, the previous few months had been hard for the residents. In the days after the murder, the paved area in front of the shop where police stood guard had slowly filled with flowers and tributes to Diana, whose shop had, for almost seven years, been central to the daily lives of the villagers. Not only had they lost a dear friend, but for many who didn't travel, they'd also lost what to some is a lifeline, the village shop. About 30 bouquets and wreaths had been laid at the scene, and more were handed to officers by parents and children doing the morning school run. It was a scene that would be mimicked a year later, on the first anniversary of Diana's death, except by then, the tone of some of the written tributes had changed, 
as one newspaper reported, I quote, Inside the shop, yellowing newspapers from March the 23rd the previous year sit on the display stand. The front steps of Melson B's shop has become a shrine to Diana. The floral tributes left there in her memory on the first anniversary of her death, wilting in the sunshine. One is dedicated to her husband, wishing he could return home, reading, Robin, in support of you, we want this nightmare to be over so you can come home to all your friends. The facts of Robin's arrest and murder charge would prove hard to swallow, as many of the 800 inhabitants of the village were still struggling to accept that he could possibly be a killer after all. Resident Neil Jones said, A lot of villagers have been upset by it. I knew Robin, and it's a difficult one, because it's just so alien. You don't expect anything like that happening on your doorstep. Now this sort of quote is always a running theme in cases like this, isn't it? You always hear similar soundbites from people on the news and you read them in the papers. The thing is though, this was a couple who were well liked and respected throughout the village. Their post office and shop sat right on the crossroads, open seven days a week. And although they had a couple of part-time staff, Diana and especially Robin's faces were the ones known to the majority of residents. The impact of Diana's death really was felt strongly through the community, and in a village like that, you really don't expect anything like that to happen. It's something that never happens where you live after all, does it? Except that the reality is, it does sadly. So shocked had been the community that on March the 28th, five days after Diana's murder, the Reverend Stan Hayworth felt compelled to comfort the Melsonby villagers during his Sunday service at the village's St. James's Church, the first service since the killing, and which he began by saying, At the centre of this village, there is a crossroads. At that crossroads, there is a place where something tragic occurred. It has shocked us all as a community. This sentiment was reflected in the views of the villagers who had, since the Wednesday evening, been leaving messages in a book of condolence which had been set up in Diana's memory. More than a hundred people had gone to the church on the Wednesday after the book had been opened, some to light candles for her or pray in her memory, and others to leave messages, one entry reading, So tragic, my deepest sympathy. Another, One of this world's very special people. We will miss you so much. The last to be reported said, I'm so very sad for you, Robin. She was a good woman and liked by everyone. Take care, our thoughts are with you. At that time, these were still the sentiments of the village. Robin was still just a loving husband whose wife had been the victim of a senseless crime. Of course, by Friday the 7th of May 2010, when Diana Garbutt's funeral service finally took place, this was no longer the case. Her mum Agnes spoke to the York press beforehand and said, somewhat understandably, It's going to be like hell, truthfully. I'm totally distraught and dreading what it will be like. I just think it will be a very sad occasion. She furthered that she expected the church to be packed out with Diana's friends and family and that there would be various readings from people who loved her before going on to say, Diana was such a lovely person. She was very kind and considerate, 
a brilliant daughter. I got two very close friends. She was one of them, and my other daughter is the other. I'm never going to replace her. There is a photograph available of the funeral procession as it made its way to St. James's Church, where in the photograph, a man in a customary top hat and mourner dress walks somberly in front of the hearse. Though you cannot see them in the picture, on the coffin lay scores of condolence cards adorned with such tributes as Dear Diana, always missed, never forgotten. The photograph also shows that behind the hearse, a small cluster of Diana's family members, dressed all in black, walked with their backs turned to the post office where they'd gathered to meet the coffin. They walked together, visibly upset, towards the church which lay only a short distance away on the opposite side of the green, where inside the building were reportedly 300 friends of the couple and villagers who'd come to pay their respects. Robin Garbutt was, of course, not among those present. The York Press reports that once inside the church, the Reverend Hayworth described Diana in, in his address as a special person who had touched so many lives, before speaking on behalf of Diana's mother Agnes, saying, I can't imagine my life without Diana. She loved a party and a good laugh. That's how I will remember my Diana, always laughing. As the coffin was removed from the church and taken through the graveyard for a private cremation, Agnes was visibly upset and had to be comforted by family members and friends. The Reverend Hayworth had also told the gathered mourners during his own address that he had been asked many times in recent weeks about the village's reaction to the violent death of Diana Garbutt. His reply, he said, was always the same. Bewilderment. It's a perfect noun to describe a sentiment that appears to have been expressed time and time again concerning the events of that Tuesday in March and the resulting developments. For you too might be wondering by now, along with many of the residents of Melsonby, how it could be that a man who was regarded as so friendly and kind, the sort of bloke who went out of his way to take shopping around to pensioners, the sort of man who was described by employees and villagers who knew him as, I quote, absolutely wonderful, a very kind and gentle man. How could someone so highly regarded have possibly been arrested for the brutal murder of his wife? Well, I think that's going to be a perfect place to finish the tale for this time around, because, of course, the answer to that is a pretty complex one to explain. Think of yourselves as if you're residents of Melsonby. You've been going into the Garbutt shop for a few years now. You're on speaking terms with them. You think you know them okay, and you agree with almost everyone else in the village. They're a lovely, normal, happy couple. Except that, of course, people rarely are the way that others think they are, are they? We all know that nothing is ever quite as perfect as it appears to be, and I just may not have quite told you everything about Diana and Robin's lives. We shall save that for the second part of All Shop and No Sex, where you'll find out why exactly I've entitled it so and where I'll take you through the trial of Robin Garbutt and tell you exactly how it could be that what you see on the surface isn't necessarily the truth. Just because two people are outgoing and friendly and seem to live the perfect life 
it doesn't mean that things aren't falling apart for them. And you know that it's not just going to be them squabbling over mundane crap like who pegs the washing out on the line or which one of them gets to drink on a night out and who's driving home. So if you want to know what was really going on, what could have prompted one newspaper to use the phrase the ugly reality of their marriage, the next time around, just like the villagers of Melsonby, we'll learn more about Robin and Diana Garbutt and it's one you won't want to miss but there's still a fair bit of controversy to come with the tale also, so I hope you'll look forward to that. Until then, like milk that's been left out of the fridge, I'm off, and I shall go put the finishing touches to the second part, which we shall save the usual post-case wrap-up for then also. I hope that it's a tale you found interesting and informative up to now. I found it an absolutely fascinating one when I came across it, I really did, and Jess totally agreed with me about it as well. So on behalf of Jess Carter and myself, I thank you kindly for joining us here today for the episode. And all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care folks, stay safe, and goodbye for now.